And welcome everybody to the live stream. I am your host today and every day at Theory Underground. David McCarricker is my name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> today we're joined by Freebeard Tomorrow, aka Nick Casalucci. How's it going, man? Doing well. Awesome. Feeling very temporal. Feeling so temporal. Well, that's perfect because it's temporality that unifies every other domain of science and life. And that's what we're here to talk about today. As you can see on the screen, folks, the thumbnail here is uh, pretty elaborate, I would say. But the book on it is History of the Concept of Time by Martin Heidegger. It shows some scientists hard at work in a lab over the earth, kind of all carved up and segmented. And then it shows different lines going to different um, sort of ways of portraying or disclosing nature and humans. And then off to the side, there's Heidegger saying, that's not being. And <laughs> so history of the concept of time is the introduction, maybe. Maybe it's the introduction to being in time. But that's the way that we're going to be treating it today. So I'm going to give you all a little uh, rundown on it. And um, I've got some slides prepared for this lecture. And Nick is one of the students of this course. He's here to hystericize me, but also just to be a sort of dialogic partner. So you read this, right? You read, read the introduction, the introduction uh, first chapter and made some headway into the second chapter. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I expect that we'll come back to do um, the first chapter, maybe the second and third chapters, depending on time and everything like that. But um, we're just going to get right into it today. I just want to say to the people in the chat, welcome to the live stream side of things, to the people watching in the future uh, who are not a part of the live stream. This is for you just as much as it is for the people on the live side. But I do have to say, we're very happy to see that Nance is in the house. Good to see you, Nance. How you doing, man? Actually, I already know he's not doing too well. He's sick. A lot of people are sick right now coming out of something. Um, I just had a fever, slept a lot for a few days. Now I feel a lot better. And so let's get into it. So before being in time, history of the concept of time was a lecture course that Heidegger gave in 1925. This is two years before the publication of Being in Time. This is said to be basically a draft of Being in Time. Yet, if you've read Being in Time and then you read this book, nothing is familiar for the first few chapters. Everything gets familiar after the first part, though. Um, and that is to say, like, it really does start to feel like a draft of Being in Time um, after you get into... After you get past the section on imminent critique, which is chapter three. So basically after chapter three, at the beginning of what's called the main part, everything here, that's like the draft to the, to be, to what became uh, one of the most notorious and profound and impactful works of philosophy, what is often said to be Heidegger's magnum opus, being in time. So is this the real introduction. 
Yes, it actually, I would argue that this is a better introduction than the introduction to being in time. That doesn't mean that the introduction to being in time is irrelevant, but uh, in fact, it's actually one of the most important parts of being in time. But if you go to the introduction of being in time, looking for an actual introduction to the project that he has undertaken, it's not going to serve you very well. And in fact, it can be such a nuisance to actually getting underway and getting some traction with this difficult text that Dr. Hubert Dreyfus at UC Berkeley, the person who taught being in time every year with a group of grad students for over 20 years, he would always say, skip the introduction and read it as an afterward, since it was, after all, written afterwards. So what makes History of the Concept of Time such a good introduction? It's actually the part before what is kind of the draft of being in time. It's chapters one, uh, it's the introduction and then chapters one through three, which is the introduction is called the theme and method of the lecture course. The subtitle of it is nature and history as domains of objects for the sciences. This is where you basically find out that the real impulse or sort of justification for what occurs and what eventually becomes being in time was actually philosophy of science, uh, a radical attempt to reground philosophy of science in a way that makes a serious rupture with the tradition that was super bogged down in some dogmatic um, ways. We'll get into all of that a little bit more here moving forward. But the last thing I want to touch on here before we switch it over is just to say that this, this, there's a difference between the initial impulse of this project, the initial intention of this project, and then the final outcome, right? And so Heidegger is selling his project to scientists and philosophers of science and people who are wondering what is the role of philosophy in the 20th century, its relationship to science. And um, he's basically saying, uh, well, you need philosophy, because all the sciences are currently in crisis. And to actually uh, do the work of getting an intimate uh, re-familiarization with your subject matter and reconsidering how your concepts and axioms and questions relate to that subject matter, that is a properly speaking philosophical task, right? And so he packages this all to an audience where he's trying to say, this is why it matters. Um, the, the chapters one through three are basically him. This is the real part that everybody wishes was in the introduction to being in time where he's basically saying, let me tell you what phenomenology is. Let me tell you why Husserl is a pimp. Let me tell you why everybody's wrong in their critiques of Husserl. And then he goes, but now that I've defended Husserl, let me tell you why Husserl is still wrong. And then he does his own imminent critique. So he gives it the best defense anyone's ever given it. And then he says, yes, but phenomenology has been, um, it hasn't gone far enough. It's not even able to uh, get, get to its own goals. So yeah, that's, that's basically, I think the main point is when you, when you read Being in Time, if you read the introduction, it comes off like he's already figured it all out. He knows what is the most important thing about this whole, he, he kind of, but it's because he's already moved through several stages. He's already done the work. And now in retrospect, he's going, ah, this is what I was doing. 
that's quite the opposite of what he's doing here where he's saying, this is what needs to be done. So what he thinks needs to be done and what he ends up actually doing, there will not be a complete matchup there um, because I think he got excited in the course of the draft mode of being in time and that this lecture course was a sort of rock star breakout moment for him. It, it actually got him critical acclaim. It got everybody talking. It got uh, the university to say, hey, Martin, you actually have to publish something now. And so uh, he never even finished the project before he was like, all right, I'll publish it. So basically he reworked a lot of what's here in the history concept of time combined with some other stuff he'd been working on and said, here you go. Here's my magnum opus, even though it was incomplete. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you think, it, you, would you agree about his audience there, Nick? Yeah. Uh, it sounds as if judging from the tone and who he directly addresses from time to time that he's initially speaking to a skeptical and mostly science inclined sort of audience what you say and it's like all right in order to really get these people on board who are at the vanguard of all of these amazing discoveries that are happening every day we're going to have to speak to them in a certain manner and our you know programmatic systematic approach to making a claim for phenomenology is going to have to be surgically precise exactly to get these people on board but if they are with us then they'll soon see that what they thought of as foundations to their their entire bodies of 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 knowledge are not that at all they're extremely shaky exactly exactly perfect so I think the main thing here is the idea of natural sciences versus historical sciences. And so that's not the way that we typically talk about it in the United States. There's a more colloquial way that people will be familiar with, which is to talk about hard sciences versus social sciences. The latter being a lot more political, uh, being a lot less repeatable, being a lot more up to opinion. Uh, this is the assumption, is that the hard sciences are less political. The hard sciences are, they might even have a monopoly on truth. Uh, obviously, there's a very popular idea, which is that every science is reducible to the next lower science until you get to the base science, which is physics, and that answers everything, right? Um, that's going to be a serious problem for Heidegger, and it also poses a serious problem for the sciences in general. But I also have on this slide math versus English. That is a standard split that people come out of high school with a very strong feeling about. You have people who are inclined towards English and people who are inclined towards math. And rarely again shall the twain meet. Um, then you've got physics versus history, right? You've got biology versus poetry. Right? Which is better for understanding plants? Well, it depends. How are we trying to understand those plants? Are we trying to understand them in a way where we can do surgery on them and, and, and get them to graft something onto them and get them to do something else you know, within 
the parameters of their natural limits, but you know, taking it in a different direction altogether. Well, obviously, you're going to have to do biology, but there's also contemplating and reflecting on and having a sort of relation to plants that someone like Rilke might have um, a better grasp on than a biologist, right? Right, um, and just a spoiler alert, I know that a uh, little bit later into this text, he talks about how the botanist's plant and then the poet's flower actually allied at a certain point. There are moments when they actually become sort of mm, inter interpenetrated in ways that we don't always notice at first. So there aren't always these uh, clear distinctions. But that's a perfect that's a perfect example of of the overall desire from the phenomenological standpoint to to say what is what is the fundamental uh, perception or experience of say a flower um, and wh how have we tended to what are the ruts of interpretation we've fallen into, right? So you might just see them as um, as a mating call from one plant to another, right? You have this strictly biological reductivist approach. And then you might have like a purely poetic relationship to that flower. Those are just two ways of relating to the flower. Is, is one of them more true? Is one of them more primordial? Um, and do both of them, do both of these ways of relating to something like a flower cover over other ways of relating, perhaps, right? And so one of the fundamental presuppositions or suspicions or hunches that Heidegger is working under is the idea that revealing is concealing, that any, any perspective, any deeply ingrained tendency to interpret things a specific way tends to cover over other ways. And the proper task of philosophy is not to say, oh, well, this is the most high-tech way we have of understanding it, so let's just submit to trying to help with this most high-tech way of understanding it, um, clarifying its own terms, but instead to say, no, what's the full experience? What do all of these other things have to add, but what's the real full experience there? Um, that kind of holistic approach is the goal, uh, the classical goal of philosophy, which is to understand the whole, to understand everything. And obviously, philosophers get a lot more humble as time goes on because, you know, that's, a, that's too tall of an order. But as far as understanding the essence of something, as far as understanding what's most important to understand about it in relationship to us, um, the basic thing is that none of these fields has the last word if you're a philosopher. So then I have astrophysics versus anthropology, sociology, etc. What is the role of philosophy in all of this? Well, in the 19th and 20th century with the crises of the sciences and the failures of the idealist systems, the new role for philosophy had basically become conceptual analysis, what we basically understand today as analytic philosophy, which is to say uh, science, that's where all of the good stuff comes from, and the role of a philosopher is to merely... Uh, make sure that the, the concepts are clear. 
right? This is the handmade into the sciences position. So is it one of these ruts that you're talking about, which is still very much prevalent today? Wouldn't it be that the ontic or these regional scientific approaches are what actually disclose the being of something? Uh, this is a, I'm saying a, a presupposition that people operate with. That is that is a normal presupposition. Yeah. I think people assume that any non-scientific perception you have of things is basically bullshit and that the only way to have a truer perception is one that has been scientifically nailed down. Right. And what they're talking about is being, but unconsciously. Right. We don't call that being when no. we rely on these presuppositions, but that's what the uh, latent thought is. Well, this, yeah, that this is, is how it's disclosed right. through right. mathematical systems. Right. And that's, you know, and, and it, it, being such a weird word, but you use the word is, you say, well, what is it? And someone says, well, it's a flower. And then you have someone go, well, actually, and then they get all Latin on you and start giving you a bunch <laughs> of technical terms. And then they're telling you what it really is. Okay. But what they're making, what they're trying to do there is say, they've got the ontological understanding. They've, they've got it nailed down. But what you just pointed out is, you actually kind of let your own like cards slip there when you called it ontic, right? Because that's the uh, any positivist science is dealing with the ontical, which is to say the actually apparent, as opposed to the ontological, right? Now, now you might have someone like Richard Dawkins or Neil deGrasse Tyson make ontological claims based on deductions from ontical empirical investigations. But if they're not trained in ontology, then the chances are they're, they're way outside their wheelhouse. And that is what tends to occur. And the, um, the true phenomenologist is Bill Clinton. He once asked, it depends what the definition of is is after the, uh, you know, being accused of the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. So Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's, there's, a, there's a time and place to be philosophical, and that was probably the wrong place to do it. But, it, <laughs> but he was asking a very – but he's, a, he's got a really good point. It really <laughs> does. That was a really, very pointed question there, yeah. Strange really, context, but – I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, he went to Harvard. He probably sat in on a class about Heidegger at some point. The so, access roads to truth appear in the strangest places. Anyway – would you like to read the quote here, the first one? Sure. <clears throat> it is not certain whether a domain of objects necessarily also gives us the actual area of subject matter out of which the thematic of the sciences is first carved. I wrestled right. with this sentence. Yeah, it's a very I had to read it a few times because it, it at first it seems kind of obvious what he's saying, but it's not obvious at all because it there's a kind of loop there. Right. It's not certain whether a domain of objects. So let's just say a domain of objects will say rocks and trees. Okay, necessarily also gives us the actual area of subject matter out of which the thematic of the sciences is first carved. So. I take it to basically mean 
and, and I, 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 the, the header for this slide is a radical vision for philosophy. And what I did was I took three quotes that I think kind of show why he, what he has in mind is a radical vision for philosophy. What he's saying is that science has come into a region or domain of being. It's a region of being that has a domain of objects. Science carves out its niche field from that domain sorry, from that region, right, dealing with this domain of objects. And then it proceeds to nail down the subject matter. Um, and I say nail down very uh, purposefully because uh, Francis Bacon, uh, in his vision for science, was to put Mother Nature on the stretcher and to flay her like Ramsey Bolton in Game of Thrones. Okay, if you if you're if the if the the reference is over your head, it's just one of the most despicable characters from the history of sh of sh television shows or cinema. And the, you know, comes from a a house of of people who are kind of known for flaying their enemies and torturing them for information, but also just because they're sadists. But what, what's, the, what's the point of, of putting nature on a stretcher and, and flaying her? The point is to get her secrets, to get her secrets from her so that you can, as Rene Descartes proposed in his Discourse on Method, um, make, make nature something that we can control so that we can dominate her, so that we can unlock a world of devices, devices that will satisfy our satisfaction or our, our appetites. And, uh, you know, obviously anybody who's got a little bit of a feminist analysis here will obviously go, well, shit, they're talking about nature as a woman and they're talking about basically like raping her and torturing her for information. Um, a lot has been made of that. There's a lot of writing that's gone into that perspective on it. And then obviously there's also the ecological perspective, which is like, uh, okay, so we've done this to nature and that's backfired in a lot of ways, right? Um, so the Baconite slash Cartesian dream has in a lot of ways brought, it's delivered on its, its vision. Um, but, the, but the point is, is that this, this nailing down the subject matter and extorting secrets from nature um, takes on a very specific mode towards the world and it takes on a very a specific uh, function as a person, as a human being. So there's a lot of assumptions all of a sudden at work about what it means to be a person, what it means to be nature, and what our role in relation to that nature is. So there's a lot of, uh, you could say, metaphysical presuppositions and ethics um, cooked right into the scientific project from the outset. And so the question that yeah. Heidegger is raising is not, he's not saying, oh, science bad. He is saying, though, well, maybe you don't get the full story about the subject matter by torturing it. Right. I read this as saying, and I, I'm just reformulating uh, what you just laid out very beautifully, but that object the objects of science only become candidates for its subject matter 
after something of them is in, in a sense repressed is mm. kind of like stripped of it and that the 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 representations that science deals with is not necessarily reducible to this domain of object so it's like the rock in the domain of objects the speck of dirt has to in some sense live up to the representation that science is looking at does that make sense like the representation comes first it has to conform to the criteria that science is laying out for what uh qualifies as a scientific discovery um but that the phenomenological returns to these objects as they are supposedly of themselves before they lend themselves to science. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, and the, 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 the project of phenomenology comes out of, and we had talked about this a little bit in the past, but I'll make it really quick. The project of trying to found uh, a psychology in, in philosophy that isn't borrowing its concepts from other domains of research or from other fields, but is developing its concepts from the things themselves. And so the idea of a phenomenology of nature and history is a much bigger task. And that's what Heidegger is basically proposing is a phenomenology of nature and history that would be able to refound philosophy of science itself. So this next quote, he says, it might well be that something essential necessarily remains closed to the potentially scientific way of disclosing a particular field of subject matter. Indeed, it must remain closed if the science wishes to perform its proper function, right? The point is, is that all sciences and all discourses and all fields that can be opened to consciousness necessarily close out a lot of other things, right? It, 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 you, you take something that is f full dimensional and you strip it down to a specific dimension. Um, you flatten it in a certain way so as to bring certain things into a relief. You, there are certain things you're controlling for, certain things you're trying to see better, which means that you're bracketing out the rest of the world. The point with phenomenology is to reverse bracket, to bracket against the bracketing that's already being done by every field of consciousness, right? So people say, oh, well, phenomenology, it's so contrived because it's bracketing out all this stuff. No, no, no. It's a compensatory measure. It's, com it's compensating for the fact that consciousness is always already bracketing. And if science is successful, it's bracketing like crazy, right? And then the last one here is, Heidegger casts doubt on the idea that historiological knowledge, knowledge of history, uh, of, his, of historical reality, enables us to see history in its historicity. Now, basically, this is a way of saying there is a historical reality. There's an, there is a, there's a historical reality, and then there's, there's the knowledge of history, and the thing is, is that knowledge of history could also interfere with being in history in a sort of sense, that there is a, an experience of being in history, that humans have always had an experience of being historical, 
But this thing called historiological knowledge and the development of history as a science is a much more recent phenomenon, and it's very open to interpretation, yet people are acting like they've got the objective account, right? Right. Doesn't he later define it as sort of doxographical? It's like you're collecting – if you were to do historiological – investigation examination of time then you would just he said like collect opinions essentially that's what it had become different concepts of time throughout history and that's doxographical and that's sort of to me it sounds like the approach of modern uh schools of sociology or anthropology and what that posits is kind of like a a vantage point from which you can safely objectively and you know impartially watch history unfold as it is without being distracted by the occult lores of what have you what in the past was like well people didn't understand history in the past because they were so seduced by these identifications they had that were magical thinking, these sorts of things, but it's, it's also another form of magical thinking to believe there's this sort of vantage point. There you go. Yeah. That you've got this, that this idea that you've got this neutral objective vantage point and that you just get to collect a bunch of, you just you just get to collect survey data and tabulate it. And run a meta analysis on it, and you'll come up with some really cool patterns, and then you'll write some papers about it, and now you're doing history, right? And so, or you're doing sociology, or you're doing anthropology, all of them kind of, you're right, make this turn. So, that's not going to be sufficient. I will jump ahead because this is in a future slide, but what you just said, basically, he's not saying it's fruitless to do that, but he is saying that the the, the role of a philosopher is to, or at least the role of what he's calling a prolegomena to any phenomenology of nature and history, which is to say, like, what, what do we need to know before we can even do such a project? Would require that we do a phenomenology of time prior to this going through history and taking all of the previous concepts of time and then seeing what we can make of them. And the point is, is like, yeah, you, you can have a ton of data, you can have a ton of data, have a ton of information, but if you don't have a way of systematizing it that, uh, that actually falls on the joints of how things really function, um, then all you're going to have is a bunch, you're going to have t- TMI. You'll have TMI and you won't know what to do with it. And you'll probably just run it through like, uh, your common sense, which is why this is a sort of doxological procedure, right? The authentic reality of history, in his idea here, is not the same thing as the science of history. So the goal of the phenomenology of natural and historical sciences is to see what can be seen prior to their split by the sciences. What is the reality already given to these domains? Right? They have a reality before these domains get compartmentalized. If sciences can show us something about these domains, 
then what is also foreclosed by the method of the sciences, right? This is, these are fundamental questions for anybody who's thinking about these things in a serious way. The split by the sciences here is one that was taken very seriously um, in like the 50 years leading up to this lecture course. Uh, Heidegger will talk a lot about Dilthey and uh, Schelling or Scheller. There's a bunch of these S names that I get mixed up. Um, but there's, there's several attempts by different people to say, okay, the split between the human and uh, natural sciences is, is not good uh, for philosophy. Philosophy has been kind of submitted to the handmaiden of the natural sciences, what's going on with these human sciences. And so you have people like Dilthey saying, look, the human sciences are trying too hard to be like the natural sciences. They need to have their own sciences and philosophy needs to do its own thing with them. And Heidegger's going, yes, you're right, except that instead of just operating in that wheelhouse of these sciences already in crisis, we actually need to take a step back before the split and he thinks that phenomenology is equipped to be able to do that. A proper philosophy sciences? No, a proper philosophy of science should be able to, this is he lays out three things, provide the foundation for their genesis from pre-theoretical experience, to exhibit the kind of access they have to the pre-given reality, and to specify the kind of concept formation which accrues to such research. Okay, what does all that mean? Pre-theoretical experience is the kind of experience that everybody has in a non-scientific world. Um, time obviously exists in non-scientific worlds. Um, and science gets, its, gets underway from that starting point. So what kind of special access does it get, does, do they have to the pre-given reality? Yeah, so what kind of special access do they have to the pre-given reality? And then what kinds of concepts accrue through this research? And part of the important thing about like what kinds of concepts are accruing through this research is the question of what what are those concepts helping us see and what are those concepts also potentially covering over right and this this is a kind of bracketing that science is doing and it's the kind of bracketing that we accept as as a rote function of truth as we conceive of it today but it's like this is a I know we're not into bracketing yet, but it seems like Heidegger is pioneering a reverse bracketing. So mm -hmm. it's not like bracketing is anything new. We do it anyway. Science brackets what is uh, or brackets out everything that's not quantifiable, essentially. Right. Yeah. And there's also the whole question of the direction of science, Jasper's is good for this in the, the idea of the university. Um, but the point is, is the science needs direction. It doesn't have its own inherent impulse and direction. It's humans that direct it. 
And usually the researchers aren't directing their own research. Usually those researchers are coming out the other end of 20 years of training under other people who are doing things for their own reasons. And why were they doing the things that they were doing? Was it really for their own reasons or was it because the war industry uh, or the, you know, the, the intelligence and surveillance state like needed certain kinds of things being researched? That tends to be the case. It tends to be the case, especially in uh, the United States, that the thing guiding the hardest sciences is the interests of war. And the book Disciplined Minds is fantastic for this. Um, but that's not just in capitalist countries. It was the same in the USSR. If uh, your, if your uh, science couldn't show itself to uh, uh, shape itself to basically confirm uh, historical and dialectical materialism, then you were out of a job or your science actually got kicked out of the university altogether. There was a whole like 20 year process of, it started with the softest sciences and it slowly moved to the hardest sciences. Logic was one of the only ones that remained untouched. Um, but even physics was in trouble because it was arguing that there was a starting point for the universe and the dialectical position was like, no, there's not, right? And so the, 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 the interests of the state, the interests of, of business, um, the interest of ego-driven scientists, whatever, there's a lot of different things that drive, that direct science, but it definitely doesn't get its own direction. And the people who are like in this mood, in this headspace, in this, oh, I'm so neutral, I'm so objective, I'm just, I'm just looking at the facts. Um, Heidegger's really good in being in time on this one, and that is that that is a mood. That is a very specific yeah. mood. It's a very specific mindset. It comes with a whole set of predispositions, and they're not neutral. Yeah. Yeah, or just to take a Zizekian approach to it, it's like there's nothing inherently wrong with science's process of bracketing the quantifiable but there's a great deal of ideology that survives that process and is disavowed in the it's process yeah the the disavowal of it is the biggest problem for this because it's just not scientific to disavow it right well and speak of the devil who do we have on the screen here i've got the an image devil the actual devil. I've got Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan. Um, and so I see the, the two crises that Heidegger wants to focus on when he's talking about the crises of the sciences. First, young people feel they have lost an original relationship to the subject matter dealt with by the sciences. Okay. And I think that a lot of people know what that feels like. You're in school. You're being told, well, this is this and this is that and that's the other. And it doesn't give you some kind of a better grasp of what you're being told about. It just feels dogmatic. And, uh, you know, maybe you get to dissect a frog. But have you really gotten to know frogs in any sort of a better way? No. Um, this is a very instrumentalized understanding of frogs. So Weber's famous speech is something that Heidegger brings up. This was something that I don't know if it was 10 years before... 20 years before, but it's definitely something that's popular in the consciousness of Germans at the time. And if it's co popular in the consciousness of Germans at the time, then it means in the intellectual world, it was for everybody because everybody was paying attention to Germany and especially 
to Weber because Weber was one of the leading lights of the intellectual world for a long time there. And basically Weber gave a sort of doom and gloom, hopeless despair speech about science and the current state of science and people losing faith in science, people losing touch with science, scientists losing touch with the subject matter itself. And really it's a conversation about, or it's a lecture about bureaucracy. I actually looked it up and it's really, he's talking about the administrative bullshit and everything that it takes to even become a researcher and all these loops that have nothing to do with truth seeking for its own sake. And so Heidegger points out that the basic solution that Weber comes up with is we basically need a new myth about science. We need a new big grand narrative for science, which is also just standard scientism as we have it today. Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson are both perfect examples of it when they get all poetical and starry-eyed about, oh my God, we're stardust. Isn't that beautiful? And it's like, why? Why is that beautiful? Why is that beautiful to you? That's also horrifying. Um, is that all we are? We're fully reducible to nothing but stardust. So, so it really doesn't make a difference if I take some of this stardust and put it through the wood chipper, does it? Yeah. Right. Like just a but It made me think. You know, speaking of disavowal, it's a kind of disavowed. The content of it is disavowed rebuttal to the idea that we're made in God's image. Right. Sense. Actually, we're just stardust at the end of the day. Either way, we're dealing with an ideological investment. Mm, mm. And the, and that, that to be Zizekian again, right? To, if you tell a person, oh, no, no, actually the second president of the United States was John Adams, not whoever you thought it was. And they go, oh, oh, well, okay. Correct it. They stand corrected. Not a big deal. But if you tell them life has meaning or you say life doesn't have meaning, we're just stardust. It doesn't fucking matter. In either of those situations, uh, a person's that p- quite possibly going to get very upset. And that very upsetness that comes with these kinds of – it's because it's so ideological, Right. And the, the, the disavowed standpoint is, for, the, for these physicists in question, that they are acting like it's not just ideological. They're acting like, no, it's just, you know, our telescopes and microscopes have told us, now we know. End of story, case closed. But this kind of scientism and that, crisis, that level of crisis of the sciences where they're really – people feel estranged from the world and, uh, and, and kind of hopeless about the situation, that's, that's not even the real crisis as Heidegger sees it. He says the real crisis is the relationship of the sciences to their subject matter, that this relationship is becoming questionable. He says the basic relationship of the subject matters is becoming insecure which activates the tendency to carry out a propedeutic reflection on their basic structure, which is to say Einstein in developing his theory of relativity was carrying out a propedeutic reflection on the basic structure of physics. Heidegger says genuine progress, what he calls revolutions in the sciences, right? He says genuine progress, these revolutions are only possible with the kind of reflection that tries to renew our relationship to the subject matter and from that basis takes seriously 
the way the concepts relate, but this is a philosophical task. Someone like Einstein was doing so philosophically, which is why he read metaphysics, right? One of Einstein's criticisms of Bertrand Russell was that Bertrand Russell is too scared to do metaphysics. He's too scared to think about fundamental reality. And he thinks, oh, well, that's just science's job. And Einstein was like, fucking bullshit it is. No, like I've got empirical shit to do over here. I've got equations to smash. You need to be actually figuring out what are the possibilities, what, what, like, come on, set the stage for me so I can go to work. And, uh, this is why Einstein, um, you know, appreciated Kant in a way that Bertrand Russell did not. And this is why I'm guessing Einstein probably appreciated Whitehead, right? Whitehead makes a big break. He was, he was one of, uh, he was a fellow traveler of Bertrand Russell's. He makes a big break to go do pure metaphysics, right? So five examples of fields in crisis, okay? Heidegger gives these five examples. I already just gave one of them, which was relativity theory and physics. Um, in mathematics, there was this big debate at the time between formalism and intuitionism. I don't know what really came of this debate, but it was a big deal. And formalism versus intuitionism was in part a disagreement between Husserl and Frege, Frege being Bertrand Russell's... Uh, sort of master. So Frege uh, would have probably been more on the formalist side, Husserl more on the intuitionist side. And the word intuition basically gets at the idea, not, that's not the word that we use it. This is not how we use the word. But the, the basic sense is that um, logic and science are not something that we just find out there. They're actually in the, their structures are in our mind itself. And um, so we're finding out something about ourselves at the same time that we're finding out something about nature. And that in a lot of ways, stuff that is being come to in math is being deduced from the a priori resources that are already available um, in the, basically the categories of the mind. And so uh, the, the Husserlian approach here is, you know, always been one of trying to find the psychological um, foundation for uh, math and logic and to see which one is based in the other. Um, and there was a time when Husserl and Frege had an ongoing dialogue through letter exchanges and whatnot, but their, their, their predecessor or the, the people who really take off um, after them uh, were Bertrand Russell and Martin Heidegger and those two, I don't think they ever tried to have a conversation. don't think so. There were also crises in biology. Vitalism had a lot to say on how uh, we're, we're, we're trying to understand living beings by carving up cadavers. Something vital is being lost here. There's something about the life force itself that isn't there with the carcass. So what's being lost in the organism uh, after it's dead? What, what about that life force is not being understood by biology, right? So this was a big crisis that they were trying to figure out. There is also the vexing issue in the historiological sciences about historical reality itself, right? Just because we have historical accounts does not mean we understand what historical reality is, right? And so you can understand it in a literary way, you can understand it in a historiological way, 
And you can also understand history through aesthetic presentations. But those are three different ways. And how can those be combined to do justice to the subject matter? And are there other ways that we should be thinking about? These were uh, the kinds of problems keeping up, keeping up researchers at the time that Heidegger is giving this talk. And then finally, theology. What's the one with theology there, Nick? Um, where traditional dogmatics has resulted in so much confusion about who God is and what man is and what kind of being constitutes this relationship. Now, would that be described as a, I mean, would that describe a modern phenomenon though? Hasn't that sort of always been the case with at least Trinitarian theology, for example? Yeah. Just to so, play devil's advocate. Well, and this is actually my weakest point. I mean, really, I, I would love to read a whole book about the crises of the sciences at this time. And I know that um, Husserl later, like, I don't know, like 30 years later or something, writes his crisis, crisis of the European sciences. But, you know, in this, in this moment... Actually, you know, it might not have been so later. Master Signified Bodies is in the chat. What's up? Good to see you, Andrew. Um, Andrew, I think that I went to correct you when you said that the Crisis of the European Sciences by Husserl was published before this. And then I was actually surprised to see it wasn't, the, 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 the gap in time might not have been so extreme. Um, I think it might have just been put to print way later. But basically, the they're both keen on the crises of the sciences. And theology was traditionally considered a science in the sense that it's a systematic form of knowledge. Um, it's a form of knowledge. Even if you don't believe in God, there's, there's still going to be ways of understanding God. What are those ways, right? If, if God exists, then God could be like this, God could be like that, God could be like this, and then different people have believed it's this and that and the other, and here's the reasons for thinking those things. To systematize all of that, it creates the basis of a vision shaft in that broader sense of the word science. And so, um, no, but I think that you're right. This has always been a problem. Um, I think that it had reached a certain uh, crucial point. Um, and it was basically like people – I think it was kind of like the administration of, of religion, the bureaucracy of religion – had gotten to be transparently backwards. Like there were rules for rules' own sake and these didn't seem to ever really help you get any sort of a deeper, more intimate familiarity with the subject matter itself, right? If you're, if you're a devout uh, religious person and you're reading everything that people, is, people are putting out on the topic and it just estranges you further and you go, none of this really has anything to do with like deepening my relationship to God or helping me understand my place in the world, then yeah, theology is failing. And so um, though Heidegger is not a Christian, he comes from that background. There was a time when he was going to be a priest. And so for him, um, I think he was very, very disillusioned with the church and he's extremely disillusioned with um, what he, we're being told to believe. And he doesn't think that there's, he, it's not that he doesn't think there's anything there, but he does, he, he's, he doesn't, he does, he's not gonna, he couldn't see himself um, 
being devote in that field, he just couldn't see himself doing it. And so the question of like how deep some of his religious presuppositions go and how that might have driven some of his inquiry and everything like that is its own standalone fascinating question that we will get into in the Being in Time course. Um, I've been actually taking a course from Samuel Lonkar on the topic of being in time, and that's something that he gets into a lot. And so I'll hopefully bring him on for a conversation about it because for for Samuel Lonkar, there's a repressed religious thread throughout Heidegger in the same way that there is in Nietzsche. Both of them were pastors' kids who almost became priests and then became pretty serious atheists. Um, just as an aside, what you just said Listen. about theology, um, the way it, the administration of it, the uh, bureaucratization of it sort of resembles to me the same sort of um, you know deadening process that goes into the the vivisection of all of life right the, you know it's, if there's something vital in religion it it's completely suffocated by bureaucracy in the same way that what's vital of the life force is evacuated in the process of just chopping up a cadaver. Exactly. 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 And I think that people have gotten a little bit more better at talking about this basic critique of scientism, um, talking about how it deals with cadavers and dead matter and um, doesn't really understand life and it doesn't treat things holistically. That discourse has gotten watered down now to where any old uh, Marianne Williamson is able to talk about it, where um, anybody who just did some shrooms is able to talk about it. Um, but this is the most thoroughgoing, sophisticated, philosophically and scientifically based way of talking about it you will ever find. Heidegger, that is. So he says, Sciences are concrete possibilities of human Dasein speaking out about the world in which it exists and about itself. And I thought that that would be a good header to this slide because it's really fascinating to think about it this way. Sciences are concrete possibilities. What does that mean? Well, a possibility that's been actualized. There are certain ways that we can talk about the world that we exist in and about ourselves. There are some possibilities. Some of those possibilities have been actualized and we call them sciences. But that doesn't mean that they, that they are the only ways of talking about things. And in fact, the whole point of understanding scientific revolutions is that over time, more and more discoveries get made, but our older scientific models aren't making sense of all these discoveries and then eventually you need to have a whole new revolution in the field to refound it, right? This is the Thomas Kuhn approach to revolutions in science and it's something that it seems like Heidegger's operating under a knowledge of that, um, whether it comes from Kuhn or he just has it for himself. The way he's talking about revolutions seems to presuppose that. 
But he says what each each of the site these sites of crisis is in need of different solutions and will have revolutions in different forms that come at different times because each of these domains is opened by a fundamentally different mode of experience, right? It's a different mode of experience that discloses chemistry, the objects of chemistry, um, than the objects of astrophysics or of like ocean biology, right? If science is not just sticking to tradition, but aims to have beneath its footing a solid relationship to the subject matter, Heidegger believes this can only follow from bringing the subject matters under under investigation to an original experience before their concealment by a particular scientific inquiry. Wait, so I have a question. Do you think Heidegger is proposing that by setting these sciences on a more stable foundation in philosophy, which would mean revising all of the central concepts which have become doxa at this point pertaining to philosophy, that sciences will flourish in a way they haven't been? Now, or this is it is, that like sciences will be completely, you know, unrecognizably different from what they were before? Like yeah, the project that, is good in spirit, but it's weak, no firm foundation. Or like, are we living in a completely new world? You know, th- this this brings us to that point from that second slide about intention versus outcome. I and the kind of the audience he's speaking to, right? I don't know what we. I think I, maybe if I've read all of his letter exchanges and I were to read his private journal entries and stuff like that, maybe I'd actually know. But from this standpoint, it seems like it seems like he does want us to think that there could be radical new flourishing in these fields. And as far as them being unrecognizable, I think I think his goal is not that they would be unrecognizable but that our relationship to them would be transformed because right now it's it's all part it's all part of alienation oh well these specialists understand that aspect of being and these specialists understand that aspect of being and at the end of the day all we really do is go to work and like i we know what our favorite food is we know what, what colors we like to wear, right but we don't know about being in any sort of like a profound way and we sort of have this relationship to these fields where it's just like, oh, well, it's interpassive, right? It's just like, well, they know, they know. And the point is, is like, well, no, but we have this pre-theoretical relationship to being that actually lets on more than we realize we know. We know more than we think we know about what it is to be. And we shouldn't not take ourselves seriously, and he wants us to be able to take ourselves more seriously in that. And in a sort of sense, he's a defender of, of peasants. He believes that peasants have a deep insight into reality. Yeah, they might be wrong in the details of their myths or something like that if they take their myths too, ser- too literally. But they still have some profound relationship to being and knowledge. Um, 
and the sort of natural peasant animosity towards the expert class that was very popular at his time, as it's popular in our time. It was popular also in Russia at his time, right, with the kulaks and everything like that. That basic rural versus urban divide where some people say, well, you know, I don't, I don't trust these specialists and I seem to – look, I, I don't know. I think I know stuff. I, think, I can't tell you what I know, but I know I, – I, I, don't look at me like I don't know anything, right? Heidegger wants to say, no, it's true. You know more than you think you do. Um, and what you do know, it, it, it will be enriched through philosophical inquiry. And he wants to equip people to be able to do that. But he wants to be able to use philosophy against itself to free up the subject matter itself, which is like this, this relationship to being. Th- that pre-theoretical relationship to being that everybody has is one that can be developed. And he wants p- people to be able to develop it. And you don't just outsource that interpassively to experts. But no, I think that's a really that's that that's like the question, um, and so philosophical interpretation is not the same thing as research mode, of any given research mode of concrete sciences, right? Philosophical interpretation, very different thing from being in a research mode within a concrete science, right? He's thinking a lot about the role and responsibility of interpretation itself. And at the end of the day, we're all responsible for interpreting our reality, right? And that's just not something that science, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no science of interpretation. Like if you, if you go to school, like we're going to find the department about the science of interpretation. No, yet we all interpret the sciences and the sciences interpret themselves but there's not a science of interpretation. That's because interpretation is properly speaking something that it falls under the, the umbrella of philosophy. And if it's not being done philosophically, then it's being done ideologically, right? So the experience and mode necessary for reinterpreting the subject matter, any subject matter, and its relation to the fundamental concepts and method of the respective sciences might in essence be different from the tools used by said science for analyzing its subject matter, right? Just because you use some tools within a science doesn't mean that those tools are what you use to then interpret that science. And then a couple of examples, understanding the historicity, which is, I kind of take that to just be like the historicalness, right? The historyishness, you know, the understanding the historicity of history might not be possible through historiological research, right? He, he's using a lot of these safe words like might, but it's also just, no, these are operating assumptions. Every time he says that, it, that the, you know, something like the historicity of history might not be possible through historiological research, you should also take that to mean that might is one that he's presupposing is the case because he thinks, well, it might be the case, it's probably worth seriously assuming that it is the case because everyone else is acting like it's not the case. So let's let's think about it seriously. Then he says, understanding life itself might not be possible by mere recourse to the discoveries of biology, right? That's the point about vitalism, right? 
understanding life itself. This is where Dilthi comes back in to play. Dilthi believed that we need a science of life. And that is what biology is supposed to be. But biology is dealing with dead things and then deducing from that that it knows everything it needs to about living things. That's a problem. Will you read this one, Nick? Yeah. We shall approach this task of laying out the actual constituents which underlie history and nature and from which they acquire their being by way of a history of the concept of time. This is one of those moments where I wish I knew German to have the exact equivalent of constituent. The you know, thing, I feel the like things that, that make the things that make it whatever it is, right? But you're right. Yeah. No, the, I mean, really, I, it, one of the things that just makes me feel like a complete plebe is is when I'm watching people giving lectures on this, and they actually bust out the original and they just read it off and then give their own interpretation on the fly. <sighs> Goals. I can, I can just tell that like constituent is one of those words that probably has a much more idiomatic equivalent in German. But anyway. Um, should I continue or let's I'll, I'll, let's think about it for one. a moment. Yeah, no, let's think about it for a moment. So he's talking at this part about what what is to be done, right? Given that there are these crises, um, given the fact that philosophy has been kind of in the weeds of these various wheelhouses, and that he thinks philosophy needs to return to its proper place of being before all of the splits and all the compartmentalizations. Like the, the job of philosophy is to think about being itself, not about biological beings and astrophysical beings and chemistry beings. No, it's to be thinking about being um, and, and to be thinking about the being who asks the question about what it is to be and to be, which is to say us, right? The, the job is to be thinking about like, well, what can we deduce ontologically about the world, about ourselves, um, without just working within these niche areas of these various fields. So he says, what we shall do is approach this task by laying out the actual constituents that underlie history and nature. So what under, so basically the things that underlie history and nature, laying them out, okay? And from them, from that, from which they acquire their being by way of a history of the concept of time. So these constituents acquire their sense of being in some way in relation to this concept of time. How does he get to that conclusion? And it's basically the fact that um, all of these domains, one thing that unifies all of them is time itself. That every attempt at an ontology from the history of thinking has had to think about time and the kinds of beings that appear in time. And then the ways that these beings get compartmentalized is usually in some way in reference to time itself. That means that, that time is the horizon in which being can even be understood at all, right? So he says, rather than work within the tradition of, or I say, rather than focus, rather than work within the tradition of focusing on the arbitrary structures of these sciences in crisis, Heidegger's radical goal is to get back to the original experience, the pre-scientific uh, 
philosophical horizon of being from which history and nature stand out. What underlies history and nature, what unites them, what causes them to stand out as separate before all of the preconceptions get involved, it's time, right? So that's why being in time is called being in time because time is going to be taken as the basic horizon against which and, and, and through which all of these other fields get developed. So why a history of the concept of time? Because the concept of time is the most obvious unifying factor between history and nature. And when I said that, it, it's also used to decide like what the kinds of beings that there are. That's Traditionally, there's non-temporal entities in mathematics, right? Numbers and math formulas. These remain true and repeatable regardless of time. Then there are also in theology something called supertemporal entities. That is entities that belong to the realm of eternity. And all the rest of the beings that we tend to deal with and that become the objects of the sciences are also said to have their own kind of temporal being. Historical entities, have it, they belong to chronologies, whereas natural occurring entities have their own modes of duration. So temporality is thus a guide, this is Heidegger, he says, a guide for the question of the being of entities and their potential regions. But it's just a guide. Temporality is just a guide. It's not going to be the best guide if we don't really have a strong conception of temporality. We have to basically think, what are the theories of temporality? What have they tended to presuppose? And what are they missing that a phenomenological analysis of time is going to help us see, right? Because Aristotle didn't have phenomenology. Bergson and Kant, they did not have phenomenology. And so basically Heidegger's going, look, phenomenology, it's the actual possibility of still doing philosophical research. He actually believes that. He thinks that you can't actually do very serious philosophy without the tools and, that have been discovered by phenomenology. And he thinks that phenomenology hasn't gone far enough. He thinks that the project needs to be expanded on. But at this stage in his development, he's going, no, the possibility for an undertaking like the one I'm talking about has only recently become obtainable. We can only right. pull out we can only pull out these tools and set to work now thanks to everything Husserl did. Thanks to everything Dilthe did. Based on all these other people's hard work, now he's standing here with like a whole toolkit and he's like nobody's taken on the most serious undertaking of all and I get to do it. Fuck guys, let's do it. So the whole <laughs> lecture course is basically him being like, guys, check it out. Look at what we have discovered and think about it. We can take this to all the kinds of beings that exist on the horizon of time itself and see what we can find that wasn't really available to anyone else, right? We stand at a very special point in history because we get to do this. And like up until this point, aren't most philosophers either adhering to the Kantian notion of time as sort of a category of intuition or Bergson's idea of time as duration or just dispensing with the question altogether. But as I understand, I think those are the two main currents that are being worked with. He's saying there's a third option here for understanding right. time. He says that 
he says that you know Kant and Bergson are still Aristotelian in a basic way, but that they do unique enough renovations in the field that they get treatment they we can treat them on their own and so he says that really it's going to be Aristotle Kant and Bergson who we really have to talk about when it comes to theories of time and he he lays that out at the end of the introduction as one of the things that he's got to do in the lecture course but it's actually one of the things that he never actually does in the lecture course because his phenomenology his phenomenological investigations that basically become being in time take him in a different direction than he originally intended to go. He's making discoveries as he goes. These are kind of explosive and a lot of people are talking about them. And he kind of just realizes like, you know, other people are going to have to finish that job if they want to because I've got more important shit to do now, right? Which is a bummer because I really wanted to see what he was going to do there with Aristotle, Kant, and Berkson. But he says, insofar as the task of philosophy is to ask the question of being, then time will prove essential to thinking being its types, modes, and domains, right? This way of talking about it with its types, its modes, its domains feels a lot more like a classical ontological thing, but he's, he's going to do something very, very different. Um, we'll still talk about modes of being in uh, being in time. But uh, I don't think he talks about domains as much. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about types as much. Um, and really, he kind of throws out a lot of the old toolkit and tries to develop a new toolkit uh, that's more specifically geared to the subject matter, which, which is because, I mean, really, phenomenology, right? And that's the, that's the title of this slide. We're almost, we're almost done here. We're almost at the end. Um, and so I, we have about 15 more minutes. Uh, and so I think we're on time. So phenomenology first. Time must be worked out phenomenologically before rushing forward into collecting, categorizing, comparing, and contrasting various concepts of time. He says that we have to work out our understanding of time before we go do all this comparing and contrasting, right? Now, obviously, he's already researched Bergson and Aristotle and Kant, um, and he's already been theorizing time, but he hasn't really... He's been, he's been entertaining the task at hand. He's been playing with the tools for the task at hand, but he hasn't truly set to work on what he's going to do in the rest of this book, the parts that become being in time. So um, it turns out that his, his attempt to work out this original phenomenological understanding of time because it has to start with the being who is in time asking the questions in the first place, he really ends up having to do a lot with Dasein. And this is where so much of the epic shit comes from, right? There's all of this stuff that he felt he had to do first before he could do the real thing. But the, the stuff he felt he had to do first is actually arguably the most interesting stuff he ever did in his entire life, right? So before the split between systematic knowledge and historiological research is the fact of our historical being in the world itself. Access to this is only possible phenomenological, phenomenologically. So he says that, but then our question should be like, why? Why, Heidegger? 
Phenomenology has made philosophical research possible, he thinks. But why? Why? Great question. That's what we will get into next time. Next time, we will get into chapters 1, 2, and 3. Not, on, not, not, all, not all at the same time, but we'll be getting into those chapters as a way of doing pre-course lectures to the Being in Time course because on the one hand, I believe that these have – they will have value to anybody who's doing this kind of research, who's trying to understand phenomenology, who's trying to read Being in Time. Anybody who's trying to read Being in Time will obviously benefit from all of this. It really helps to know that that project comes out of this intention. And then it's fascinating to see that it kind of goes in a different direction, but it really helps to know what it's coming out of, which is why he spends chapters one through three talking about what is phenomenology, what is its discoveries, how does it tend to be critiqued, why are those critiques bullshit, and also why do I think it needs to be critiqued and hasn't gone far enough. That's what he's going to do in chapters one through three of history, the concept of time. If this has gotten you excited and you're not going to be able to take the being in time course with us, I still think you should read those chapters on your own. They're a lot more accessible than anything else that he tends to write um, because he's he's really he's courting this sort of scientific audience and he's not a rock star yet, so he doesn't get to write any which way he pleases yet. So really, he's speaking as clearly as you're ever going to find him and it's really cool to see the person associated with phenomenology the most besides Husserl laying out why, why he thinks uh, his mentor is correct in a lot of ways and that the critics are wrong, um, but also then hearing his own imminent critique of Husserl. It's badass and it's what I think is the proper introduction to being in time because you know you're getting involved in some hermeneutic phenomenology, but you don't really know what that means unless you go read everything by Husserl. But then even that's not going to be helpful because Husserl and Heidegger's projects are so different from one another's. So it's a lot more helpful to just hear from Heidegger's mouth himself saying why he thinks Husserl is important, what he thinks Husserl has achieved. Because there's more to Husserl than Heidegger's Husserl. But if we're trying to understand Heidegger, we have to understand what is Heidegger's Husserl on Heidegger's own terms. So that's that. Really, the last thing I'm going to touch on here is just the plan. Did you see the plan and did you realize what was missing when you looked at the, uh, his little outline at the end of the introduction? If you look at page eight, it says outline of the lecture course. He says, to summarize, the basic question of the reality of history and nature is the basic question of the reality of a, of a particular domain of being. For the question of being, the concept of time is our guide. Accordingly, the question of the being of entities, if it is to be regarded as radical, is tied to a discussion of the phenomenon of time. This discussion of the phenomenon of time is neither systematic in the traditional sense nor historiological, but phenomenological. This results in the following outline for the entire course, which is divided into three parts. First part, it's up on the screen, analysis of the phenomenon of time and derivation of the concept of time. Second part, disclosure of the history of the concept of time. Third part, 
On the basis of the first and second parts, the elaboration of the horizon for the question of being in general and of the being of history and nature in particular. That is a tall fucking order. In fact, it's such a tall order, he only does the first part. Parts two and three there don't happen. And so when I first read this, and then I was reading down below and I was was seeing what he was talking about, and there was this bit about how in like part part three, he's going to have to talk about the initial, he's going to have to talk, wait, no, no, no. In the second part, he's going to talk about Bergson's, Bergson's theory of time. He's going to talk about Kant and Newton. And then he's going to talk about Aristotle, uh, the initial conceptual, uh, the initial, the initial conceptual discovery of time in Aristotle. So the, those three parts were going to be in the second part which is the disclosure of the history of the concept of time. And so I got all excited and I was like, I'm going to skip ahead and just read what he has to say about Bergson. I'm really curious. And then I went looking for it in the book and I was like, I can't find it. So then I went to the, then I went to the table of contents and I was looking and I was like, Oh, he never did it. He never got there. And then I was like, well, what's going on here? So basically he adds chapters one, two and three before the, before the first part that we see up on the screen. Chapters one, two, and three being the history of phenomenology and his critique of it. Um, but no, he full on, he aborts mission on steps two and three. This is, this is, this is this lecture that he gave and got everybody really excited about. And then he continues on this lecture course. But after a certain point, he's gone so deep into this shit about the meaning of the question of being and the kind of being who's asking the question and the kinds of questions philosophers have failed to even consider dealing with that being that he just goes, okay, fuck man, we're on some way more important shit now. And so that's, that's fascinating to me to see, oh no, there's this whole trajectory. There's this whole thing that he was going to do. And then he just realized, oh no, I've got to do this though. And yeah, you'll see what he's actually doing in being in time and what he actually does get to in his phenomenological researches is actually, I think, probably more interesting than his original research program. His procedure in the next few chapters, it's brilliant, but it was a little confusing to me only in the context of something he says near the end of the introduction, which I'll read to you, Dave, and I'm page. hoping that you can a- explain it to me where, what page is this? It is page seven. On page seven near the end, he says, the historiological clarification of the history of the concept of time is only didactically speaking didactically separated from the systematic analysis of the phenomenon of time. The latter in turn is the preparation for the possibility of historiological understanding. So that would be the systematic analysis of the phenomenon of time is the preparation for the possibility of historiological understanding. But when he's going through the different concepts of time that Dilthey and 
Brentano and Husserl and numerous others are working with, it seems like that's feels like a historiological procedure. But to bear out the, the systematic concept as it's run through these different systems. That's what I got from it. But he says that the systematic analysis is the preparation for the historiological understanding. Yeah, I think what I take to be – I get a little confused here still between historiological knowledge and systematic knowledge. And I took the historiological to be facts about history, historical facts, and the study of historical facts. Um, you know, like this means going and reading Gibbon and, and trying to figure out, like, how do you separate truth from, from like, fiction and myth? And how do we nail down what really happened in these historical accounts that were obviously written to please kings, right? Like those kinds of questions of historiological research, apart from the systematic, which I take to probably be the conceptual, which I take to probably be like the, we're talking about Aristotle, Kant, Bergson, uh, Newton, right? And so um, the, I think what matters here is that the intent isn't one he follows through on. He says here, like leading out the course, this is how we're going to go about it. But then he doesn't go about it that way. And, and, but the part that you were reading about Brentano and Husserl and all these guys, that's less of him trying to give us like this rigorous systematic or historiological account of the concept of time. He's not interested in doing that in that part. In that part, he's merely interested in introducing to us the major players in the history of phenomenology itself. He's focused on you understanding, oh, Brentano, important guy. What was his contribution? How did he influence Husserl? How does Husserl differ from Brentano or Brentano? And so it's that, that's what he's focused on there. Um, is his introduction to phenomenology itself. So those chapters one through three, it's it's almost like it's it's like an intermission before he dives into part one. So what he says at the uh, here on the last page, really page set, uh, uh, it's not the last page of the introduction, but it's before he gets to the outline of the lecture course. So when he says the latter in turn is the preparation for the possibility or historical historiological understanding. He's talking about a part that be, he's going to begin on. Um, I'm trying to get to the part here, but I think it's like, yeah, it's the first division, which is to say, like, a, it's page 135, right? That's after chapters one through three when he introduces phenomenology, so... Now, I, I, I think that the best introduction to Brentano and Husserl and intentionality and everything like that is probably just the conversation I had with Brian Becker. And so that will be released on this channel this week as a way of hopefully getting some people excited about the upcoming Being in Time course. But um, 
for now, I, I, I hope that you and I will be able to come back and have a bit more of a conversation about yeah. some of the introductory stuff. And I'm hoping to do a lecture before the actual Being in Time course begins dedicated to the introduction, the actual introduction to Being in Time, which is, once again, more of an afterward. But he did put it at the beginning for a reason. And it's not just to overwhelm you and discourage you. He actually, it, it's just all the things he really wants you to kind of have going in to the project. And though I can see the benefit of just skipping it and going straight into chapter one, I can also see the benefit of hearing a lecture on it before going straight into chapter one, which is going to be the assumption for this is that you don't have to read like the 40 pages of the introduction. We're all going to just really begin when, once the course begins on chapter one of being in time. But I'll still do a lecture on the introduction itself. And uh, it might be worth coming back to later with people once everybody's read the book. A couple little points of order. Um, the course begins on June 1 and then Division 2. You sign up for one and then if you get a lot out of it, then you sign up for the other. But I realize that's a really stupid thing because if you are taking on being in time, sorry, I think that my internet connection is probably dropping on me. You Am I back? A Am I back yet? Yeah, you're back. Okay. Yeah, it was... Uh, I'm at a new place here for the next 10 days, and uh, the Wi-Fi is also new, so still getting the hang of it. But um, it's done us good so far. That was the first time it dropped out on us. So thank, thank you, Wi-Fi gods. So the uh, what was I saying? Being in time, Division 1 and 2. Um, if you're taking on this book this summer, then you want to get through it. Right, And so Division 1 is going to begin on June 3rd and go through July 22nd. And then Division 2 is going to go from August 19th through October 28th. The reason for this is uh, if you want to have some time in the summer that's not killing yourself with difficult texts, then do it between Division 1 and Division 2. There's like a break planned into it, but... Um, besides that, we're, we're doing the whole thing. Are you excited yet? Oh, hell yeah. I'm really excited because I've been in Zizek land for a while now. It's a good place to be, but I want to take on something completely different. This feels like the next logical island to visit to belabor this strained analogy but yeah i love it i love it man i'm stoked that you're doing it um, yeah for sure i've already learned like a lot just from reading the first i don't know 23 pages or so of this so hell yeah hell yeah cool all right well um, we're at time now, so everybody just uh, go to theory-underground.com forward slash courses forward slash uh, – I, I guess right now it says B&T Div 1. I think you could probably just do B and T and you'll get it. 
Um, I'm going to go ahead and like look into that URL and make sure it's up to date because it, it's not just Division One; it's the, it, they're both packaged together. Uh, it's basically buy one get both. So um, with that, everyone, I'm going to turn it over here to the PSA here in close, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Take care, everybody. We're looking forward to reading this text with you. Peace. Pez out. I think that I need to plug in something. Well, shit. I thought I was going to I thought I was going to roll the ad here. I'm still gonna um it's just going to be a bit of a workaround, so bear with me for a second. Let's see how do I do it. Wait for it. Wait for it. I guess um, while you wait for it, um, while I get it set up here, I will just add that the critical media theory course is technically beginning one month later than the PSA is going to say. Um, it was going to begin second Sunday of May, but instead it's going to be the uh, second Sunday of June when is when it begins. But there will be a pre-course special, um, and if you are in the Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory course, then when that pre-course special occurs, um, you will be able to meet Andrew McLuhan, the son of Marshall McLuhan. It's a very special opportunity. And so I hope that you will be able to take advantage of that. Let's see if I can roll the PSA here. I'm just playing it off of the end of some other video because my hard drive, I couldn't find the cord for my hard drive and the video for the PSA is actually on that hard drive. So I'm just gonna play it this way. This marathon, which is currently going on 10 and a half hours. Um, fuck yeah, let's do another couple. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. 
The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important, yet neglected, for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023. In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being in Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory, a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at tier three, you also get access to the recovery group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? One of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it 
that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in Time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, People tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency, like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point. And uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.